down to earth on News Talk with a Monday, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better world for all. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we cover the toughest challenges here with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You'll hear diverse views on the show as we try to find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises. On the show today, we find out how to transform our society to bend the emissions curve and tackle climate change. Ashin Coughlin and Claire Watson will explain how to build a movement of climate action from the ground up. Dr. Larry O'Connell gives me a crash course in what a just transition really means. Author of The Happy Hero, Solitaire Townsend, explains why she's more of a climate optimist than ever after two decades working in sustainability. And comedian PJ Gallagher is my guest this week for My Green Life, where we'll find out if I can turn the self-confessed petrol head into an eco-warrior. It's time to head down to earth. We would also love to hear from you. We've talked about a lot of different technological changes we could make to address climate change in things like transport, energy, and food production in previous episodes of Down to Earth. But how do we convince people and communities to take the leap into a fossil fuel-free future? You can email us with your thoughts at downtoearth@newstalk.com. Well, my first guests have their own opinions on how to make that so-called low-carbon transition based on decades working with communities here in Ireland and building the environmental movement. Ashin Coughlin is the director of Friends of the Earth Ireland, an NGO near and dear to my heart, and Claire Watson leads the engaged research team at the Mare Centre for Energy, Climate and Marine within University College Cork. Welcome, Ashin and Claire. Hello. Great to be with you, Takara. Great Thank to you, have you. We've been so-called climate laggards here in Ireland with emissions rising instead of falling in areas like transport and agriculture pre-COVID, of course. And Ashin, I think I first heard you use that term climate laggard about 10 years ago. So what have we achieved in climate action, if anything, since Ireland signed on to the first global climate agreement nearly 25 years ago? Or do you still feel like we're climate laggards? Um, There's one area where we are, uh, we're leaders actually, and that is in renewable electricity. Uh, where we are close to, I think last year, 40% of our electricity came from renewable sources. And that was a target set in 2010 by the Fianna Fáil Green Party government. And so, it, first of all, it shows we can do things and we put our mind to it. And also, given the debate now about the climate law, it shows the value of targets. Uh, when I first heard them being talked about, a previous minister said, I'm now moving that target to 12.5% because I'm told by civil servants that's what we're going to achieve anyway. And whereas that 40% target was a stretch target, it was actually, this is going to be challenging. We know it's technically possible, but it's going to be challenging. It's going to require investment and reorientation by the ESB. It was set 10 years ago and we met it because uh, semi-state bodies like the ESB responded and so did the private sector and came in with investment and achieved the, the kind of renewables we want to see. So uh, that's one area where, we're, where, where we are leaders as opposed to laggards. Um, so it just shows you when we, when we do make decisions and put political will and, uh, and, and indeed private ingenuity and, and, and public participation behind big ideas, we can, we can do it. So you're on the fence a little bit. Good in some areas, bad in others. Oh, well, no, we're, we're, still, we're still laggards. <laughs> Otherwise, I mean, we first used the term in 2006. Uh, but then, of course, famously, Leo Varadkar used it in 2018, talking to the European Parliament. I think we're now, though, uh, I don't know if we're... we're well, we've made real progress on the policy side, or at least on the public 
recognition and, and the political uh, recognition side over the last three years since then, the, the Citizens' Assembly and the, again, as in other areas, the surprising results of that for politicians, they found that the public was far more up for action and far more demanding of state and government uh, leadership than they expected. And that gave them confidence to, to plan for action. And that was followed by, as it had been on the issue of abortion, by a really uh, um, deep dive into the issues by a joint Oireachtas committee, by TDs and senators of all parties, 21 of them out of 160, uh, did a deep dive and came up with a really landmark report in 2019. And that's led, along with activism that we'll talk about, to the kind of reorientation of public policy in the last year uh, by the outgoing government and the incoming government uh, to have climate change as a centerpiece of policy. But that's just got us to the starting line. You know, we, we now have to have emissions in 10 years, uh, which is really challenging. Of course, it's only challenging. So it's, we only have that challenge. That's such a challenging target because we've been so, so much of a laggard, as you said. I heard one commentator regarded as well, we're, we're front loading the action over the next 30 years by saying we have to have our emissions in the first 10. No, we're backloading action over the last 30 years because we should have started this 20 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, in which case it would have been a much steep, more shallow uh, decline we were looking at in terms of our emissions and much easier to do. The, camp, the, the climate law we're seeing now is the one that Friends of the Earth started, climbing, started campaigning for almost exactly 14 years ago on the 12th of April 2007. If we had adopted it in 2010 when there was a possibility to do so, we would have been looking at reductions of 3% a year. But because we stalled for 10 years, because vested interests and others and inertia in the system wouldn't accept that climate law 10 years ago. Now we're looking at, at reductions of at least 7%. That's still not our fair share, but it would put us in line with the EU average. Claire, Oisin mentioned there just uh, you, the importance of, of activism and community engagement. And, and, I, and I think to, to kind of make these changes, we have to have the public putting pressure on politicians and government. And I read an opinion piece you wrote in 2015 about your own efforts to live sustainably in Bantry County, Cork, starting in 1999, and how frustrated you came in those efforts to convince others to do the same. So now as someone who researches community engagement and climate change, what changes have you seen in Ireland over the last two decades regarding community engagement? Well, I think um, just speaking personally, I think there's a, I, I've definitely shifted my own thinking. So when we were living on the farm, we were a little bit evangelistic about it. <laughs> Look what we're doing, aren't we wonderful? Come and do what we're doing. And we kind of, we were a bit disappointed that people weren't following our lead. And I realized once I, st I started looking into it, that actually you've got to start where people are at, that we can't presume that people are all early adopters or that they get the, the, the climate challenge. And if they do get it, that they um, can actually change their lifestyles. So really, I, I went into Tamara to, to do a PhD on, on um, how do you engage people in climate action? I really wanted to drill down on the challenges um, and they are multifaceted. Um, and I think one of the, the, the problems we had in the environmental movement, um, and I think we're really we're, we're changing that now, is we came across as being a little preachy, quite judgmental. And we were telling people the facts as we saw it. Um, and that really was a bit doom and gloom laden, you know, so we were saying this is how bad it's going to get, therefore you must do something about it. But that can shift people very quickly into apathy or into denial or even into, into outright kind of conflict or reaction. Um, whereas if you can give people a vision of the future that's hopeful and that is actually, um, you know, we can look forward to moving towards it in particular because we're looking at our own kids, you know, that's, our, that's our, our, the young people's future. So therefore, if we're telling them it's going to be a disaster, um, that, that isn't going to cut it. So what, what, uh, um, 
Currently, I'm involved in a, um, an initiative called Dingle Peninsula 2030, where four agencies have come together. About three years ago, um, we, we, we collaborated. So there's the Dingle Hub, there's um, ESB Networks, the local community partnership group, uh, NUCAD and ourselves in Marai. And the, the, what we're trying to do is really um, support and help the local people on the, on the peninsula to transition to a low carbon sustainable future. So Oshin um, Clare has mentioned a lot of interesting little initiatives happening in the Dingle Peninsula 2030 project. And I'm sure there's other examples around Ireland and, and around other parts of the world. So, I mean, do you feel that you've seen the same changes that Claire is alluding to? Do you feel that we have grown the movement sufficiently in the last couple of decades? I, mean, I think there's two aspects. There's the sort of the campaigning side of the movement, and then there's the those who want to actually, as as Claire was describing, adopt new technologies and be involved in other ways. And I think that we have seen progress on both, but we have a long way to go in making it easy for people to participate. Mm-hmm. Uh, like on the on the sort of movement side, uh, yeah, absolutely. The last five years have been transformative. Like since the Paris Agreement, really. Before that, it was pretty much a minority sport. It was NGOs, it was some activists. We were plugging away, as so many interest groups do, at making our case for, for better public policy. But, you know, we made some impacts, but it was pretty it was pretty small beer. What we've seen since the Paris Agreement is kind of issues that resonate with people more directly. So uh, the first one was really fracking, the idea that that um, companies would frack the lands around Leitrim and down the Shannon Basin to, to, to release more fossil gas really got local communities uh, uh, excited, for want of a better word, and engaged uh, of, and of all, you know, not the usual suspects, you know, farmers and, and voters of all political parties, not just sort of progressive liberal types. And it really shook the political system up. And, and that was very much a grassroots led campaign. And within, like it took us eight years to get the first climate law. They took only them 18 months to ban fracking by law in Ireland, one of only four countries in the world to do it. We saw the students uh, in, inside universities, first of all, campaigned to get their universities to divest from fossil fuels, taking inspiration from a global movement. And then, of course, we saw uh, the school strikes in 2019, again, sparked by one school one girl in, 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 uh, in Greta Thunberg uh, and became a global phenomenon. And that showed the political system that the future voters uh, wanted to see action on this. And that overlaying the kind of policy side that I talked about, the Citizens' Assembly and so on, that really, I think, is what changed the atmosphere. On the ground, though, in terms of community engagement uh, in the actual transition, we've seen huge appetite to be involved in community energy, to be involved in owning their own renewable energy projects. But what we've found, I mean, we've worked worked on this for the last seven years uh, in Friends of the Earth, is that it's really hard. The government makes it difficult. Mm. The state makes it really difficult. Everything from, you know, the planning applications to the connecting to the grid. Uh, So to give you one simple example uh, at this point, uh, if you want to put solar panels on your school, you have to apply for planning permission. Lots of other buildings are exempt, but schools aren't. So we've been running a competition for schools to help them do this, but it's to demonstrate basically how hard it is. But we had hundreds of schools want to do it, to take part in the competition. And we need to move, as kind of as Claire was saying, from the pioneers and the early adopters to making this accessible and affordable for everybody. There's no reason why every school in Ireland shouldn't be a solar school within the next five years. Like it, it, It's a community hub. It makes everybody see how you can generate solar electricity. You can see the, the meter go backwards in the, in the school hall, etc. And it's not about particularly providing all our gigawatts, that's going to have to come from offshore wind and so on. But it's about everybody feeling part of this project of societal transformation. It's a no brainer. Politicians say they like it, but they haven't done it yet. And Oshin, isn't there, um, there's a gap, I think, at the moment, particularly at the community level, between telling people what to do and trying to encourage people to do it 
between actually and then actually enabling and empowering people you know th there's a gap in support so even in Dingle even though we had four agencies with our own resources involved we, we found it very difficult to access core funding for instance you know so I mean I think that there's a sense that um, it, once people know what they what they have to do then they'll kind of do it in a voluntary capacity so I mean while I think that the sustainable energy communities program in, in SEAI is great it isn't enough you know, because it's encouraging people to come together in voluntary, uh, in voluntary groups and you can only do so much as volunteers. So what Absolutely. we found is that you need to employ um, <clears throat> coordinators, you need to employ project managers, um, you, you know, so, for instance, in the community energy sector, it's very hard to ask a group of volunteers to come together and like Temple Dairy, I know it took them 10 years to get their um, their wind generators up and running. It, it's a long haul. And as you say, there's a lot of barriers and for volunteers to do that on their own. It's really, really difficult. So in, in Dingle, we've just accessed fun, funding, actually, um, through the Science Foundation Ireland Discover Fund and also we're part of an EU Plutus project. So we're ma we've managed to get money together to actually um, employ a community engagement coordinator. So that person will be in place next next week. You're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk. My guests are Ashin Coughlin from Friends of the Earth Ireland and Claire Watson from the Mare Research Centre at University College Cork. We're potentially having a big moment in climate action right now as new climate legislation makes its way through its final stages in the government. So assuming this legislation passes, Ashin, what do you think will be the next big battle in creating real change that actually bends the emission curve downward the actual action plan to reduce emissions i mean uh, you know i've been banging on about this climate law for 14 years but it's only the framework it's only the legal framework to drive action to have proper expert advice to have proper parliamentary scrutiny and to ensure the government does have a plan every five years or more often it's only that like it's the rules of the game it doesn't decide the outcome it makes it a bit more of a level playing field between those who want action and those who are resisting action for years but then we have to still have the plan to reduce emissions and the government has just launched a big consultation uh, there's, there's a ways it's not that's an effort to open up the consultation process but it's it's a bit clunky and it's a bit too focused on individual action but there are opportunities to get in there and say what you want the government to do in order to make the transition easier for you uh, and then we'll see hopefully by the by the uh, by july by the end of this 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 term this summer term of of, of parliament uh, we'll see the new action plan which is basically supposed to lay out how we're going to have our emissions in 10 years so that's the that's the actual that's where the rubber hits the road so to speak uh, we're going to have to see the the actual plans because the, the previous plan from two years ago would only deliver half those emissions reductions this plan needs to be twice as as uh, as ambitious twice as effective it's going to if it's going to deliver on the targets that are in the bill we saw a green wave of sorts in the last election but given how much the world has changed since then how do you think voters might might vote if uh, a future election came up and how would they rank environmental issues in their voting choices I, I would never try to second guess voters uh it's very hard obviously the, the world has been you know grabbed like like one of those snow snow globes has been shaken in the last um year we're not we have no it's really hard to say how how things are going to uh, and Oshin, i think i think we, we don't know how how COVID, the pandemic and the lockdowns will actually influence our future do we i mean i mean i'm quite heartened with with the um the fact that that we've prioritized um, health over the economy mm -hmm. in relation to the pandemic. I think that's a really interesting one. So the economy has taken second stage to some extent, you know, yeah. and, um, and, and I think that bodes well um, if we're trying to segue people into 
into a green yes. economy and or whatever that maybe other priorities will rise up i mean what, what do you think yes when 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 the government the state and society collectively accept that something is a big risk it's mm. able to mobilize it, it did it for the for the financial crisis after after the crash although that caused how that was done was problematic uh, and it's done it in, 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 for covid in a way that we haven't been seen since wartime i would i would, mm. I would reckon so we've shown mm. that we can respond to risk when it's fully accepted by uh, as risk mm. and when the government relies on experts i mean every time they've deviated from the public health advice in the last year it's gone it's gone off track so like we want to see that kind of media engagement that public engagement that political engagement that expert led mm. policy on climate as well What's happening as well, of course, with the change of, 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 of administration in the US, uh, we are seeing you know, a, a psychological shift in terms of the global orientation around action and this drive to build back better from COVID-19 uh, mm. so that the recovery should be a just recovery that prioritizes climate action. And of course, the other thing that's changed is we loosened purse strings. So to give one example around retrofitting, which is where there's so much low hanging fruit. 10 years ago when the crash came, Angela Merkel wouldn't let us borrow any money. Uh, if we could have borrowed money then, we could have invested in retrofitting our housing stock, kept the jobs here, uh, and it would have been a win-win. Whereas we lost skills, we lost employment, we lost people to migrated. Uh, if we can now borrow money very cheaply, the state can in particular, cheaper almost than ever, uh, and, in, and invest, not, not, not give all the middle class big grants, but invest in social housing, invest in retrofitting lower income homes, and have some sort of uh, sub, um, support scheme for, for, uh, on the project side for, for the rest of us but that's a huge win because it's not about emissions you don't lead with emissions you say do you want a warmer home with lower fuel bills with cleaner air mm. uh, oh and by the way you reduce pollution like so that's mm. where uh, and you get jobs that's mm. a huge opportunity for ireland over the next uh, over the next 10 years but it'll take some investment and it'll take leadership but there's huge mm. opportunities in, in what comes next finally i'm i'm interested in hearing from both of you we've heard a lot of politicians going on about the need to not leave anyone behind and making this big transition off fossil fuels so briefly what do both of you feel what's the first thing we need to do to ensure that we actually do bring everyone along in this transition? Well, I mean, I, I would straight say community engagement. You know, we just have to provide the supports at local level. Um, without that, I mean, I, I, I know that, <clears throat> as Oshin was saying, it's very, very important to have the campaigners. It's important to have leadership. It's important to have plans, to have laws, to have the technology. But it does, and communications, that's the other area, you know, because people need to have a good sense of what they've been asked to do. Um, but if you don't have the, the support, literally at people's doorsteps and an easy support that people can access, um, then we're going nowhere. You know, I mean, I, I do think that's the, that's the, it's another area of low hanging fruit that we're not addressing. And Ashin, would you agree with Claire? I totally agree with Claire, but as get, speaking, I suppose, as the head of a campaigning organisation, I think we will also need, which is, this is a slightly uh, different answer to your question, we'll also need to keep campaigning. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned yeah. the Citizens' Assembly uh, a while ago, and to use that analogy, you know, in 1993, homosexuality was decriminalised. It took another 20 years before we had the Citizens' Assembly mm. uh, and the uh, the vote on, on marriage equality. You know, so we've had our Citizens' Assembly now on, on, on climate, but we need that 20 years of campaigning. Yeah. We're going to have our climate law now. We need 20 years of campaigning to make sure we actually get the policies and the supports for community yeah. that we actually see the emissions reductions. So and, we can't, and in we can't fairness, Oshin, without the campaigning that you guys have been doing, we probably wouldn't have a climate law at this stage. You know, so the so campaign is really important. You need some groups or people to be pushing the door open at the at the edge for everyone else then to, to, to walk through. Still a long journey <laughs> to go. Oshin Coughlin and Claire Watson, thank you for joining us here on Down to Earth. 
We've just been speaking about how to bring everyone along on the low-carbon transition to address climate change, but I'm joined now by Dr. Larry O'Connell, Director of Ireland's National Economic and Social Council, to discuss how we ensure that the most vulnerable in our society and those most dependent on fossil fuels are not left behind. Thanks so much for joining us on Down to Earth, Larry. Thank you very much for having me, Tara. Larry, Nesk published a report last year on managing a transition to a fundamentally new economic future, as you called it. And that was both in an effort to address climate change and the digital transformation that's happening in our society. And in that report, you identified particularly vulnerable groups such as workers and companies that might be susceptible to job losses because we're transitioning off fossil fuels. So who is most at risk as we move away from fossil fuels and to what extent? Our report looked at that question of, you know, who who was most vulnerable. And I suppose the first thing maybe to say is, in overall terms, I don't think the transition to low carbon is something that we need to be, you know, really worried about um, in terms of the scale. If you look at, say, the overall numbers, the OECD have done an estimate that shows, that, you know, maybe the overall employment loss related to the just transition to carbon would be as low as 0.3%. Uh, when we looked at that in an Irish context, work by the SRI showed that by 2030, we might lose jobs 0.3%. To put that in numbers, that's 7,000 jobs that we're talking about being lost because of the transition to low carbon. That will create an awful lot of hardship for specific sectors, for specific communities, and, and for families. But it is manageable, I suppose. That's one of the things that our report uh, focused on, is that that scale of, of, of job losses uh, certainly can be managed. And, and if you look at what the state has done in terms of stepping in to respond to COVID and, and the transition around that, we've shown that the state now is you know, willing to, to, to support uh, workers. So I think that's the first point to make, you know, that, that we can get our head around this challenge and it's manageable. We've seen a lot of emphasis in the last couple of years on peat workers and, and hundreds of jobs lost in the Midlands because they're particularly at risk as we make efforts to stop burning peat to address climate and biodiversity challenges. So what's been happening to jobs in that sector in recent years? Yeah, and, and and I think that the peat is the first. It's it's the it, the first example in Ireland of, of where we've really had to grapple with what it means to tra- transition to low carbon, and and as you say, there there have been job losses, and the you know they've been particularly they're concentrated in a region which makes it very difficult. Constantly, you know, they're in the Midlands in the one area. Uh, where it means that you have a lot of indirect effects when you get, you know, what people call it, the, the anchor tenant in an area like Bordenamona has a huge history in the region and has employed so many people. And as I said, the indirect employment impacts are, are, are very significant there. Um, but a lot, I suppose, has, has happened in the region to support uh, that process. And I think uh, in particular, the, you know, the establishment of uh, the, the Just Transition Fund and the work of the Just Transition Commissioner, uh, Kieran Mulvey, um, has really been intense and very focused on trying to, to, to deal with the, with the fallout from the, 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 the closures in the area. And, and I think we're seeing quite, you know, we're quite, quite, quite a, a lot of support in terms of those funds means that there are going to be opportunities created for people to support, uh, you know, develop new uh, businesses and green energy, tourism. Uh, there's a lot of support for reskilling and training, projects like anaerobic digestion, the development of co-working hubs. So, and, and, and the, the argument we were trying to make, Carrie, in our report was 
the, the, the challenge is to create good quality jobs in regions. And I mean, that, that applies to Ireland in general. That's what we really need to be focused on is creating good jobs. And the Midlands is, is an example now where we're really investing to, to try to bring that about. And, and it is going to take time. And, and I have, you know, always a great sympathy. You know, I mean, the transition is very difficult for individuals. I mean, if you've worked all your life in board Nimona and your job goes, that's a very difficult situation. And I think, you know, we, we have to provide a lot of support on the ground for that. And, and that's happening now in, 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 in the Midlands. But I think we'll see the same coming in other sectors. Um, and that's maybe the challenge is to maybe be somewhat more more proactive in trying to think about the next uh, the next challenges. So we've resourced the, the peat issue now and we're starting to finally see change in that. What sectors do you think we should next focus on in supporting a just transition to a low carbon future? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think areas like, I suppose the next one, I mean, obviously there, there's a transition in money point at some, uh, you know, and I mean, some changes there. But again, the numbers that employed are, are, are small. The next area is probably is when you move out, it, it really it's it, maybe agriculture is the big key challenge that we need to look to. Uh, I think we all now accept that there's a, a transition that will begin need to happen in, in agriculture towards more sustainable agriculture. Um, and, and that is probably the big sector. I mean, the numbers we're talking that sector are enormous. So it's a question of how do you, do you figure out the types of supports and how they can be targeted at the, at the most vulnerable within that sector. And I think just to say, Caro, I mean, we feel it's very important that language is, is used correctly here. I mean, it, we, we don't mean to imply that the tr- just transition is something that people will be told to do. You, you know, that is, it's, what we need to feel is we're not telling people that they just need to transition, you know, move to something else. We, what we need to do is, is, is to sit down and work with people. And we're a lot of folks now in this term of co-create, which means, you know, work with farmers and, and, and rural communities to figure out what are the types of supports they might need. And, and we had a paper recently, we got some work done from uh, uh, with colleagues in UCD to try to look at the opportunities that exist in rural Ireland. And there's you know, significant funding under you know, for climate change uh, and various funding streams that I think people realize can be used to create opportunities in rural communities. But the key is that we need to work with the farming community to bring about solutions rather than sort of impose them from the top. Well, my thanks to Dr. Larry O'Connell of the National Economic and Social Council for his crash course in the just transition. Up next, we'll find out why author and entrepreneur Solitaire Townsend calls herself a climate optimist and claims we can change our lives by changing the world. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is Down to Earth on News Talk. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to comedian PJ Gallagher about his green life, where we'll find out if I was able to turn the self-proclaimed petrol head into an eco-warrior. But before that, I couldn't resist playing this before my next guest.
Yes, it's David Bowie's Heroes, because my next guest, Solitaire Townsend, is the author of The Happy Hero, and she taught me nearly everything I know about how to communicate environmental issues many years ago in her role as co-founder of the global sustainability communications company, Futura. Solitaire, we've got to make this enormous transition off fossil fuels and unsustainable practices, and we need to get everyone on board to make that change. So you've dedicated your career to trying to do just that. How do we bring everyone along in a change that can oftentimes seem so overwhelming? It's such a great question. And the answer is this secret that I'm so eager for more people to know, which is everything which we have to do as individuals to make a difference in the world, we should want to do because actually these are things which are good for us. Now, that's the whole idea at the heart of my book, The Happy Hero, is those hero hero actions, heroin actions that we can take in our lives and also the dividends and benefits that they bring for our health our well-being, our time. So this, this for me is, um, is the greatest secret is that you shouldn't have to take action as a duty or because you want to do your bit. You should take action to save the world because actually it's going to help to save you. So give us an example. So, for example, food. We know that there is a really, food is one of the three parts of everybody's footprint. Food, travel and our homes is where all of our footprint comes from. And actually what the Lancet report that the the medical journal discovered is that by reducing our meat intake, we can have a significant punch on carbon by reducing our meat intake. And also it could reduce incidence of heart disease by almost 40%. It could help us get better sleep. It could help us lose weight. So this is a perfect example in in our diet about where what's good for the planet is also really good for us. A lot of times we we hear governments and companies saying, yeah, it's all the power of one and you need to make individual changes in your own lifestyle to to solve climate change. But yet we know that, you know, what one person does at home is not going to save the world. So how do you reconcile that with with the need for the big system changes that we really, really do need urgently? So all the change that I've seen over my career, and I have to say, there's been a lot. We have achieved a lot of things which were unspeakable. And talk, you know, you could never talk about flights um, even ten years ago. Now lots of people are, are talking about um, uh, how we change that. But what I've learned is there's two parts to change people power and powerful people so people power you me is everybody listening making the changes in our life um but not just the changes in our life about how we consume but also about how we vote about how we teach our kids about what we share and what we say on social media because by the way the powerful people are listening to all of that so those powerful people the ceos the the, the government leaders um they're If we work together, if we actually bring together that people power with the powerful people, we get change. However, if we only focus on one end of that, only focus on what individuals can do, or only expect that our leaders are going to take these choices for us, then we end up not being able to move forward. So make those changes in your life. They're your footprint. Everybody's responsible for what we do as an individual. So make those changes in your life, knowing that you're going to get benefits from making those changes, and also talk about having made those changes. Because if enough of us speak up, then I can promise you, all these CEOs and government ministers that I deal with, they are listening. Yeah, we've seen that here in Ireland, where politicians were saying in the last election that climate was coming up as one of the top five issues on the doorstep in in every political party. You call yourself a climate optimist. So what keeps you optimistic when the news about our changing climate keeps getting worse? 
So for the start, it's actually in the news, which it wasn't when I started my career, that climate change, as you say, has become a political issue. When, when they come and doorstep you and you raise that, that, that has an enormous impact. It's become such a big issue for businesses because suddenly the green consumer is no longer sort of some small cadre of people who would you know, only buy recycled. Suddenly every consumer is interested in these issues, is worried, is asking questions. And of course, it's the massive concern, upset, anger, hope that is being shown by our young people all around the world. Um, and the fact, that, again, that every every leader is wondering whether they're going to hold on to their positions of power with this wave of concern that's coming up. So I think it was Mahatma Gandhi who said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then, then you win. And I have seen that journey um, in the last 20 years. And the very fact that we're on this podcast with the number of people who are listening, having this conversation is a sign of what's changed. What's the most surprising thing that you've seen in terms of public engagement and sustainability issues since you've been working on it? Honestly, veganism, that has been uh, uh, one of when I started out my career um, and we were talking about the issues that we could talk about with politicians, what we could talk about with businesses, what we could talk about with the public. There were two things I was told I was advised never to raise air travel and meat. Those just that those were considered the things which were just never ever going to be discussable or challengeable. And of course, now we have this huge vegan movement. Um, and we've got vegan bodybuilders. It's become really popular, particularly with um, with uh, extreme sports people and with athletes. So that's been one of the. You know, we've got vegan January. You've got McDonald's doing vegan options. That's been one of the changes that same came so quickly, and. And, and, a, and a change where people are making those differences for the planet and also for their own health. And that always for me is the answer. If we can find things which are good for you as well as being good for the planet, that's where people find it. So all of us find it easy to change our lives. So what do you think we should be doing better to more effectively communicate climate action and inspire climate action going forward? So the biggest thing any of us can do is rather than try to scare, terrify, browbeat um, other people is basically have more fun and show it, like show the benefits of living this lifestyle, show why you are a happier, healthier person by caring and making a difference in the world. Um, talk about the, the benefits of talking up because we, human beings are social animals. We listen to each other. So as well as actually doing the walking the talk, we actually have to talk the talk. So the biggest thing that you can do is actually live a fantastic, low impact lifestyle and tell the world about it. So you mentioned that food would be one of the top things we could do to to really address climate action in our own lives. What are what are the other things you think we should be doing in in travel and in our houses to bend well, the emissions curve? The, the biggest thing any of us can do to end the emissions curve is to vote <laughs> and to make sure that we are uh, having our political voice heard. Whenever we talk about individual action, we always assume that's sort of action as a consumer. But remember, individual action is also action as a citizen, writing to your MP, tweeting at your MP, uh, Facebooking at your at your um, at your leadership, depending on where, where you live, um, uh, buying products from companies which clearly have um, uh, uh, have a big commitment. But one of the biggest things and easiest things, it's literally just a couple of clicks is to go online and change your energy supplier 
towards a green energy supplier, an energy supplier which is feeding in renewable energy to the grid. Um, they are often equal, if not cheaper, than um, than some of the the brown and, and uh, coal and um, uh, and oil uh, energy providers. And it's uh, go online now, search green energy provider, go to one of the switching sites. It is one of the easiest and biggest impacts you can have. Well, as always, I've been inspired by our conversation, Solitaire. Thanks so much for joining me today on Down to Earth. Wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. Stay tuned. It's coming up next. Comedian PJ Gallagher will be telling me about his green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. And today, comedian PJ Gallagher joins us on Down to Earth. Welcome, PJ. Uh, good morning. Uh, how are you? I, I feel like a complete fraud being on this show. Can yeah. I just say, yes. like, I, I feel like I have no business being on here. I'm, I'm like the most unqualified guest you will ever have. Yeah, you're not known for talking about environmental issues, but you've kindly agreed to be my victim on My Green Life this week. So let me start by asking you when you first became aware of climate change and other environmental problems. Well, environmental problems on the whole, climate change on its own, I'm not really too sure, but environmental problems on the whole, I suppose it was like in the 80s, you know, when CFCs were our big worry and the ozone was our big worry. Um, and I guess that's when it started to be a real sort of, you know, that's that's when I started to realise it was an, a problem and not just things adults spoke about and was really boring, if you know what I mean. <laughs> that's actually a problem we've we've started to solve because we banned uh, CFCs and, and the ozone layer has started to close back up again. But uh, climate change itself, when did you hear about it? Uh, well, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm really not too sure. I guess it's one of those things like erosion. It just kind of, I gradually realized its severity over time, I think, you know. Um, so it was like, uh, I guess I heard people talking about it, didn't take it seriously. Then one day I was building anxiety about it. And I guess through the last 10 years, 15 years or something, I've realized how serious it is. What was um, it that, that caused anxiety? Well, I, I suppose that like it's painted to us in such utter despair, I suppose, you know, like every time, like there's always like, for instance, I just watched Sea Spiracy. Have you seen Sea Spiracy? I just like, watched it too. It's something we're going to be talking about on the show next week. Well, there you go. So you look at that and it's like, say, if, I, I'm not sure how long it is, but say if it's 90 minutes long for 80 minutes, they do everything they can to paint the picture that we are doomed. And then they try and pull it back in 10. Um, so I suppose it's really hard not to have anxiety about it you know yeah uh, you start realizing i am actually a huge contributor to this problem and then you start to feel like well what can i do to fix it how can i help how can i be part of the uh, part of change and um you kind of realize well you actually can't you know you, you i suppose all the recycling in the world i do all the actual cycling in the world i do all mm. the you know wearing the same clothes until the arse falls out me tracksuit bottoms i do doesn't make a huge amount of difference so you kind of just do your bit and hope that one day everybody else does too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you mentioned a few things that, that you do. Uh, you have been vegetarian. I don't know if you're still a vegetarian, are you? Well, no, I haven't been a vegetarian for a long time because I was a vegetarian for like seven years. Um, and then I, I, I just wasn't really healthy. I didn't really understand how to eat healthily as, an edu- as a vegetarian, you know? Yeah. Um, like there was never really vegetarian options that much, but I'm slowly getting back to it. I'm down to eating like one meat meal a day. So I'm down to like, I mean, like I'm eating like 30%, if even 
um, the amount of meat I was eating this time last year. Like mm. I'm, I've really rapidly reduced the amount of meat I eat, and, are yeah, you... and I'm still working on getting rid of the rest of it. You know, and what are, what's, what's motivating? Like... What's motivating that? Is it more an animal welfare thing or an environmental Mostly, thing? It's about it's fifty fifty. I, like it's animal welfare, um, and it's um, and it's environmental issues. You know, um, when you see how much damage it does. See, I'm only learning. I'm still learning on a you know, on a sort of micro scale every day, how much impact these things have, because it's very easy to think or to look at them and just think, well, I'm only like, you know, doing a small bit. But so it's it's kind of both of them. And and, and, and because there's more options now, like 15 years ago when I was doing the whole veggie thing, it was hard to get decent veggie food. It was hard to know. There wasn't a lot of vegetarians out there. It was still kind of a laughable venture. But now everybody... Like a lot of people are trying to eat a lot less meat. So it's easier now. Yeah. Since you watch Seaspiracy, the big take-home message on that seemed to be, we shouldn't be eating fish. Are you going to give up fish now too? I was like, I watched so like I watched so much of that show. And all through that show, I was thinking, oh, thank God they haven't mentioned shellfish because I love shellfish. And then all of a sudden it was slavery. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. Um, so I was like... Uh, I'm going to try and I, I mean, I'll, I'm not going to give up everything. No. I'm just not. I'm never going to be vegan, you yeah. know, um, but I'll, I'm going to do as as much as I can and, and stay healthy at the same time, if you know what I mean. So you, hopefully the industry catches up. Yeah, um, catches with up with PJ, yeah. <laughs> you, you have given up uh, buying clothes, I understand. So when was the last time you bought clothes? Okay, yesterday, right? Before, <laughs> before that, months ago. I bought the new Bohemians jersey yesterday. I was like, what? I had to have it. Um, <laughs> but before that, like, I, I, I'm really, really, I hardly buy clothes at all anymore. Like, really hardly at all. Uh, I'm down to two pairs of jeans. I actually found a pair of jeans in the shed last week. I was over the moon. <laughs> Are you really, you're, you're not, not going to buy any more jeans ever? No, well, I, I definitely will eventually. Like, you know, I had a pair of jeans I really liked and I wore out the sort of crotch area of them. I was very disappointed. Now I found a new pair. They've got shallow pockets, but, you know, I'll get a year out of them. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, like that, I'm trying, really trying not to buy any new clothes. And I w- realize I don't need much. Like, I, I can see all, every piece of clothing I own, I can see from where I'm sitting right now in the house. What in, What's inspired that decision to not buy clothes? Are you just not into I, fashion? Or? No, I, I, no I, I, for a very brief period, I, I thought, like, like I, I don't really do anything else, uh, so I'm going to buy clothes. And I started to see, believe it or not, as pathetic as it sounds, it was like Instagram influencers that started getting this message across. So there's like this woman called Geraldine Cart, and she has this, um, you know, she she does a lot about sustainable fashion and uh, the damage it can cause the environment. And I just, again, I was just completely clueless. So, uh, and, I, and, and I like saving money. So if I can save money and with a clean conscience, it makes me kind of happy, you know. Uh, I'd rather collect a few quid than a, a few jumpers. I guess that helps as well. <laughs> That's a good argument. You founded a cycling club in Clontarf, and, and you're quite a keen uh, cycler and motorcyclist. But uh, how do you feel about our cycling infrastructure in Dublin? You have, like, I spoke to you, I don't know, not very long ago about cycling. And I was, like, giving out about all the cycling access. And then I have spent this morning fixing up my bike. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm such a turncoat. I mean, like, I, I think, like, I, obviously, I, cycling is great and all, but I don't think it's the answer for everybody. You know, I don't think cycling at the expense of motoring completely really helps because it helps a certain amount of people, but there's very few people really in the grand scheme of things that can just jump on a bike and go anywhere they want. You know, my mom's 83 years old. I, I'm not going to, she's not going to be able to get the bike, you know. 
Um, you know, like people, big families can't get on bikes. People who have to do big family shops can't get on bikes. And and then on nice days, it can be, it can feel like if you're not young, fit, and healthy, that you get excluded from certain places because you can't be on a bike. So yeah. I love. I founded the cycling club. I love everything on two wheels, but it can't just be cycling focused without being focused on people who can't get on bikes too. You know. I don't know what the answer for that is. I don't know if there's like a driving limit for over 62s or something. I really don't know. Like only said, only let expert, old people but... drive. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Like you got to be, yeah. Like you know what I mean? You got to be over eight, over 16 to smoke cigarettes and you got to be over 18 to have alcohol. Maybe you got to be over 60 to drive a car to a beauty spot. <laughs> that's <laughs> but just... that's ludicrous. Yeah, let's discriminate. families can't go. And, like I look at, I live at Bull Island and it's so beautiful. It's so nice. And it's now, really inaccessible to a lot of the pensioners who live in the area because they cannot take their car down there because they've blocked up so many parking spots. You know, in places like Copenhagen, 50% of the population cycles, and, and you mentioned COVID benefits. We have an obesity problem here in Ireland that could be solved if, if we had a lot more people cycling. Do you not think that's an argument for get, really getting more people on bikes and creating more safe cycling infrastructure? No, I, I don't find the obesity argument, like, at all because, like, 80% of that is is food, you know? Like, as somebody who works out a lot, if I go mental on the food for two weeks, I've reversed almost everything. Uh, like, it's great to do exercise and everything. Um, and, like, I, and, by, and by the way, I'm not telling anyone not to cycle. Like, like I am a cyclist, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's just, but uh, I, I don't know. It's just not the answer on its own. Like, no one thing is the answer on its own. So when it starts to be, when cycling is, like, the city now, so many people cannot access the city anymore uh, because it's been made so cycling friendly. And, you, you know, it's just, I just think there's an argument that, that we got to watch ourselves. So if it's only people on bikes, then only half the people in the country get to go everywhere. You're kind of an anti-cycling cyclist, really. But, you know, if you were Thishik for a day, what what is the one thing you would do to try and deal with some of our environmental issues? I guess uh, plastic does my head in. So, you know the way, like, if you take tablets, remember years ago you used to get tablets from a pharmacy and you used to get them in a bottle and then... When you were when you needed more tablets, they refilled your bottle. But now everything is like these single popper plastic things mm-hmm. for medication, like that's shit like that. And and single use water bottles does my head in. Uh, you know all those single use plastics. If I could, if I had like even a t-shirt couldn't do it. But if I had enough power for one day to do one thing, I guess it would be to sort of ban single use plastic because I see so much. I inherit so much of this. Uh, shit all the time like every time I buy something it's wrapped in this crap uh, and it's and I that's the one thing I see all the time I don't see the fumes coming out of my car I don't see you know uh, the damage my clothes are ca- causing but every single day I do something with plastic I buy plastic and it, it annoys me so much you're old enough to remember the deposit and return scheme for glass I think so are you in favor of the idea <laughs> I know not to make you feel old but uh, are you in favor of the idea they're talking now about bringing that back for plastic bottles do you think that's a good yeah. idea 100% why wouldn't like what is the argument against that it might cause children to run out on streets to collect plastic bottles. Uh, I think Dennis right, Nocton so once said that. It, the argument against it is kids will have a job. Like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I kids agree. will have something to do and make money in the process. Like, when I was 14, my parents made me go out and make money, you know, delivering leaflets and all. Get out of it. Of course it's so a good I, like Bring it back then. So kids go out and make money and clean up the environment at the same time. Win-win. Uh, I'm all for it. Like, I remember living in Boston and we were with the bottle things in Boston, you were to go around and collect all the bottles and bring them back. And we made money out of it. And like the homeless guys were at it. Everybody, you know, the, when, if, if you 
look at every plastic bottle around the street and see there's 20p. There are not going to be many of them lying around anymore. Exactly. Yeah. You're a self-confessed petrol head and a former yeah. motorbike racer, I understand. So last week I got Franklin Motorcycles in Dublin to send you over their fully electric motorcycle made by Zero. What's your verdict of that bike? Okay, like... I got, I'll start by saying I wasn't too hopeful at the start, right? Uh, because I'm such a purist when it comes to uh, the, the, the engine, you know. I know that you hate me, to hate to hear this, but there's something just absolutely glorious about being able to put dinosaur bones into a vehicle <laughs> that then flies off the power of the past. Like, there's something beautiful about that, you know. Like, you get extinct animals that we had no played no part in killing and put them into the tank of a motorbike and fly, propel yourself into the future. Uh, <laughs> and the roar, that cacophony of, of sound, that beautiful music, you might call it engine noise, I call it engine music. Uh, and I thought when I got on an electric bike, to have it so sanitized, I wouldn't really like it that much. And um, unfortunately, I loved it. <laughs> so you can do without the dinosaurs and you're happy to, to ride an electric bike. You think you'll switch over now? I, I, at the moment, like, um, I would, I would love to, but I don't think, uh, I would at the moment because it's just the charging points around the country and stuff, you know, uh, for long journey. I'm probably not ready at the moment, but like, see next year, I think we're going to make vast improvements. So see if I was, if I was given the chance to own one today, I would take it. And will I ride it every day? Yeah, I would. Yeah. And I'm surprised to hear myself saying these things. Yeah, I am. It was so fast and it was so much fun and when you hit the brakes, it felt like you were hitting the wall. And the lack of engine sound is actually kind of thrilling because it's kind of like you're going 100 miles an hour on a bicycle. Like there's something really weirdly compelling about that. So it's a totally different, to me, I'm, I'm describing it as Schrodinger's motorcycle because it is and is not a motorcycle at exactly the same time. <laughs> so it's sort of like, That's very it's deep. such a different experience. It's hard to make it one or the other. Wow. So thanks to Franklin Motorcycles for finally converting you. I've talked to you a lot about electric cars because I have one myself. And I know you got to try out the Tesla autonomous driving car last year. Uh, were you convinced by that at all? I, I had this conversation with Jim, who I work with today. And um, I, I, I see, I, I think this, I, this is like the closed thing now. It's like, because I've started looking at these things, I've looked at them with a skeptical eye. I guess this is open-minded. It keeps, you keep changing your mind all the time. Uh, <laughs> if I am open-minded or not just easily influenced, I don't know. Um, but uh, I, so I, I guess I drove to Tesla and had really a lot of fun. And then I, the next day I was kind of thinking, oh, would I, I wasn't that good fun. And you, you know, you talk to everyone and say, oh, maybe it wasn't, um, you know, is it as much, is it as good? Would I live with one? And then I, I kind of went into a different thought. Nah, it wasn't for me. And then me, myself and Jim started looking at them on, on the internet, like over the last week. And now both of us are mad to get one. Uh, is again, it the look? Just, or... I'm not sure what you can do on long journeys. Is it the look of it or what, what is it that's, that's suddenly compelling you toward it? It's the it's the it's like it's got a lot going for it, right? So straight away, the lack of spending three grand a year on fuel is pretty big, you know. Uh, and then I suppose uh, it's it is a very nice looking car, like it's a high end car. Uh, it's got all the comforts you need. It's as much fun as any other car. And then realistically, how much driving am I going to do anymore? So if it was sitting there and doing the mileage I'm doing. And if, if I could get around like doing gigs and stuff all over the country in it, mm -hmm. I think I would swap really soon. 
my God, this is feel like counselling. I feel like I'm revealing a side to myself I never knew existed as I speak to you now. So maybe I am turning you into a, an eco warrior, like I hoped. Between the no. No, between no. the no, okay, well, between the vegetarian diet, PJ, and the cycling and the lack of new clothes, I think your not so green life is actually one of the greenest that we've had on the show, and and very funny as always. I'm horrified. I'm absolutely <laughs> horrified. But you've labelled me with you. <laughs> I'll never live it down. My thanks to PJ Gallagher for letting us into his very green life. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my producer, Alex Rousseau, and our intern this week, Holly Cosgrove, for this episode of Down to Earth. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the series on podcast at Newstalk.com or on the Newstalk app. Next week, we're taking a dive into the deep blue sea to explore our underwater environment. But until then, stay curious.